Hey everybody, Jim Kerr here. Really excited about today's conversation with my friend Diana Wu David. Diana's a workplace futurist. She's an author. She's um, an academic. She was a one-time aide to Dr. Henry Kissinger. She's all about the future of, of work. Um, Diana, welcome aboard. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Jim. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And I'm in Asia, so I don't have coffee, but I got my, you know, libations and I'm ready to go. <laughs> way to be, way to be. Yeah, I've, I've got my coffee here, my famous coffee mug. Hey, look, Diana, the very first question, what will work life look like for a recent college grad in 2031? That's just 10 years from now. What's the workplace look like in 2031? There are so many signals of what is happening now that I think will be just commonplace in the future. Um, and, and I think about it because my nephew's graduating this year and he's going into you know, a fairly traditional finance job. In 10 years, he will absolutely, he's already done a, an internship in blockchain. I think he absolutely will be um, somebody thinking about blockchain-based finance, and most industries will have some aspect of blockchain. Um, I, I think that he will probably be, or maybe my kids who are a bit younger will be AI native. So they will look at us and think, oh my God, she writes her own emails. Can you even believe that? What a waste of time when we could be thinking about, you know, higher level order things. I think that technology um, will be empowering us even more on the, you know, it, in the way it does now, as well as on the physical plane. You see all the different um, robots and exoskeletons for people that are in warehouse work. Uh, and that we will spend a lot more time on the human uh, factor and the, the empathy and leadership and really it will be more important than ever making the people we work with or if we're a leader the people that that work with and for us feel safe and feel relevant and and have a sense of belonging um, in both physical presence as well as online virtual as well as even the multiverse so um, there are so many amazing things happening that have frankly been happening for the last 10 years uh, that are going to massively influence the next 10 years. And COVID, of course, has accelerated that. Yeah, it sure has. Um, well, let, let's play around with that first thought. So, so you kind of answered the question by saying, hey, look, innovation is going to be an important influencer in the way work gets done in the future. Can't argue with that. Certainly AI, robotics, and so on are all already there. They're only going to get stronger and evolve further. Um, but I wonder about the implications of that world. And again, trying to put my futurist hat on, you know, 10 years from now, are we looking at a business world with fewer rules um, and 
sort of budding marketing, uh, uh, budding market of specialists that kind of come together and 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 work together on a project and launch a product and, and, and feed sort of a hungry marketplace. But the implication is it's smaller businesses. It's it's fueled by technologists that that decide to commune, uh, you know, for the sake of of uh, delivering value. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, I talk to people um, and try to teach them how to be future proof. So there's a dystopian version of that where the technologists are ruling the world and, um, you know, people like me and people that I teach or talk to are kind of feeding off the, the um, you know, plankton while the sharks swim by. But I do think that, uh, first of all, yes, the Avengers are our model. There will be liquid super teams. There already are. We come together to save the world and then go and, and you know, if you see in any of the Marvel um, MCU movies, there there is a lot of dysfunction in teams. There will always be. <laughs> um, and then go off. And I think that people already have, you know, careers where they have multiple different revenue streams to de-risk. They have um, multiple interests and technology is making that easier um, and slash jobs and all of that. Um, and they're, they're kind of company, the idea of the company of one, like I'm going to invest in my um, personal brand and in my both my deep expertise as well as uh, you know an array of different skills and and sort of the softer skills I need to form quick teams and fast trust and then disband and find other people in my network. I think all of that is really important. Um, and on a good day, I feel really optimistic about that. I think that there's um, so much opportunity to do interesting work that's uniquely um, suited to me or, or other people. Um, and on a bad day, of course, I think that there's a huge shift that needs to take place in the workforce. And um, it's going to be difficult for that to be a smooth shift. So yeah, that yeah, I, I think I, is worrying. Yeah, I, I'm with you. You know, I, I mean, I wrote about this in one of my earlier books, and I've got to say it was probably 15 years ago already where I was talking about sort of a, a free agent society where people mm -hmm. can kind of come in and out of, of um, work opportunities and that businesses would be evolving into a place where that was going to be really readily acceptable behavior where, and, and sort of still today, uh, the model is, you know, I will contract you, you will work for my large corporation. And when you're done, you know, you have to go find another deal. It was more of what what we're calling a gig economy today, where you've got you know players that are able to sort of be more fluid and so on. But what do you think about the implications of that? I mean, does the things like contract negotiation and and maybe more creative ways to compensate individuals become something that we've got to worry about as we continue this evolution? For sure, smart contracts are already, you know, already there, already um, becoming more normal. Uh, 
And I think that the way that we will compensate people will also change. And I have a client who's a crypto exchange. So I've been thinking a lot about, they care about finance and, and whatnot. And I keep thinking about how blockchain can help us in terms of um, compensation, in terms of credentialing, uh, in terms of, you know, and having these fascinating conversations, like what if you did something wrong? Is that kind of perpetually going to, to be there in your in your chain. Um, yep. So I, I don't know if that's 10 years off. It's sort of like your, your free agent nation from 15 years ago. I think that uh, it's evolving in fits and starts. I do mm -hmm. think that people will be able to be compensated um, and already are compensated from their many um, freelance uh, jobs and, and gig jobs in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. I myself, like I have you know, a board seat on, that compensates me in options or equity. And then I have to mm -hmm. balance that because it's deferred income with um, work that I do on a regular basis. And, and um, John, I see in the comments was saying, oh my God, so all work is ad hoc. Um, mm -hmm. No, it's not. You may have, you know, 10 year contracts. I worked for Financial Times full-time for 10 years and I've probably worked for five years on an annual contract that renews every year to be head of faculty. I'm mm -hmm. a contract worker. I'm basically a gig worker. Mm -hmm. I've been a gig worker for the London Stock Exchange, for the Colombo mm -hmm. Stock Exchange, for the World Bank. Right. You could call it that. Um, and, and a lot of those are ongoing. They are um, contracts to do a certain amount of work that's not full-time. They could never afford me full-time uh, mm -hmm. you know, for, for that particular job. And mm -hmm. so everybody's happy. Yeah. I mean, I, I am too. I, I, I'm have a similar background in consulting and, and advising for 30 years now and I have the sort of the ability to be a little creative in the way that I design my contracts in fact I had uh, a client that I was working with on a large merger who actually gave me a membership at a golf course while I was <laughs> working with them and you know I kept an apartment you know where they were and and they hooked me up with you know uh, a a membership in a very exclusive um, country club. So so there's different things I can imagine as I look 10 years out and say, oh, well, maybe there's deals that are being made about child care or elder care or other kinds of, of, of ways to compensate people that are different than what we are sort of so far accustomed to. One other thing you said earlier, and I wanted to play around with you on this one, and that's that whole notion about intellectual property. So if we're, in a mm. gig, if we're in a gig economy and we're heading to one where there's a company of one, as you say, who owns intellectual property? And do, do, do you imagine that we'll see changes in sort of the rules, laws, regulations around that? You know, could, could a, a business lay claim to an idea that you and I have on off hours, but we're both working for that company as independents do they, do they lay claim to our idea? What do you think? Well, we already have those kind of contracts um, now. You know, every time that I work for a client, the work that I produce for them, sometimes it's their work. Sometimes we negotiate that um, it's something I can use again and again. Uh, so I don't think that that's going to be different per se. I just think there will be a lot fewer people who decide to spend all their time 
at one company doing work for that company because they because it's just become a big risk. It's become a bigger risk to be in one company and to become dependent on that company um, and not to, for instance, have a, a side gig. So one of the people that was in my Future Proof course was they were, um, they started their business and it was in the education field. And then they were um, invited to, to be part of this amazing Hong Kong innovation school and they're starting up the secondary school for this. Mm -hmm. um, but she kept her company and that was their agreement. And so she'll she'll do this basically corporate job or school job um, of, of starting this innovation school. But then she's also got this other company to go back to that sort of she can carry with her over time. And they have a, a mature conversation about what's what and what the divides are and what the boundaries are. Um, but I think that that's going to be much more. You see it now, you know, in the U.S., people um, maybe after their corporate jobs, they have their own consulting companies or whatnot. I think people are going to do that earlier and earlier so that they can start building over time their own body of work, their own company, their own personal, you know, sort of avocation and develop that over time while doing their, their corporate work as well if they choose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And for sure, we're seeing that stuff already. And it's always been a, a factor, right? There's always non-disclosure agreements. And I don't want to say always, but you know, modern day business there, that's, a, that's quite prevalent. And there's always, you know, fine print about who owns what, you know, and, and, and so on. But I couldn't imagine that if we break down the boundaries that we sort of live within today and we're really about companies of one and technology as you mentioned at the outset is sort of the driving force be, be behind these changes that i could see business owners basically saying wait a minute you know you, you got that idea from me and you just extended it so it's my stuff it's not your stuff and you know that kind of those kind of debates i think are going to probably emerge if this scenario emerges, right? If we really get to a place where it's small companies and not big corporations that, that rule the, the day. I think, yeah, a mix of both. So in my view, larger corporations will have more of a core staff, right? That that they can, um, they can kind of manage all of the different departments and freelancers and, you know, and, um, and, and sort of manage the way that it all comes together and rolls up. Um, but whereas the inclination in the past in my corporate career has always been to, oh, we need, we need headcount, like that's a headcount, whatever. You're not going to think about that so much and you will be able to think, you know, okay, we don't have to hire somebody for that job because we have somebody that we can find um, through AI or through LinkedIn, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and has the specific skills we need. Um, people are working for less time. So even full-time jobs, they're calling tours of duty where we're going for two years and then we go to the next thing. You know, very much more like, okay, I need, I need Jim for this job. I need mm -hmm. Jim for this job for, you know, six months to two years. Right. And I need him two days a week yep. or you know, that's kind of input oriented. I need these outcomes and mm -hmm. I want Jim and other people to come together for this. Um, but of course there'll be corporations that have, you know, 
HR and, and finance and all these things that will, will be still the core of, of the company. Yeah, I mean, if we play around with that scenario a little bit, so if we think the first scenario is sort of small businesses, technology-driven, a few key individuals, people get together, they gig together, they produce stuff, move on to the next gig. The other scenario is large corporates continue sort of in that evolution that we've already begun probably, I don't know, 50 years ago. They continue to get bigger, stronger, more influential, participate in the political process, have influence beyond you know, the board. Um, if that's the scenario that continues to emerge, are we looking at corporations that start to, I don't know, feed employer employees, you know, super vitamins to make them more productive or, or do implants? You know, you talked about skeletons and stuff in the warehouse. Um, that's already there, but do, do we, in the thirst for more pro, uh, productivity, are we going to see a dramatic shift in the way companies uh, force their work workers to, you know, engage, do work? Well, uh, you know, I'm I've been in Asia a long time, and so it's really interesting to read. I feel like you know English is my first language, and so I read a lot in the press. And we both have um, written for places like Fast Company and Inc. and Harvard Business Review, and I love reading about that. But then I also am sitting right next to China. And so I think that um, we're already trying to be as productive as we can. And what I'd like to think is that we're going to get rid of this productivity addiction and start looking more at outcomes that we will look for tech to, to be enabling that. But it's not just tech. Like in one of the things that I wrote about just based on my own experience really was it's about globalization. And not necessarily that everything is globalizing, but in fact, um, things are now localizing more and more with 3D printing, et cetera, and really changing the face of work. And the other thing is demographic. So on a very basic level, um, I think that the, the, um, we have fewer people for the jobs that we need to have done. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's part of the drive behind automation. So will we have to be ever more productive? I, I, um, I kind of don't think so. I, I think there'll always be that imbalance. If you look at the World Economic Forum, they release the sort of fastest growing jobs or the, or the biggest gaps in jobs. And a lot of it is um, healthcare workers and nurse practitioners. And it's, it really is that human element. And a lot of those jobs are not incredibly well paid. So, you mm -hmm. know, will people... Will the people who go there have to be ever more productive because not enough people want to be there? Hopefully that'll drive up the salaries for these very important jobs. Um, I don't know, but but I think that um, you see with COVID that there's this re-evaluation from people mm -hmm. saying, okay, how much do I need? How much do I need this job? Mm -hmm. Like, what exactly is this doing for me? What kind of meaning is there? Um, I think that's going to continue. And you see it, it's a generational shift. You see it in China. So China is talking about, they have a phrase in um, China called quitting naked, <laughs> which is uh, when you quit your job with no job to go to. And right. they have um, lying flat, which is, you know, a sort of protest from younger workers uh, against the 996 culture of 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, which was standard. It's not like, 
you know, the warriors, the work warriors doing it. That That's yeah. just standard Everybody. practice. Yeah. So look, I, I want to play with that question a little bit more, but, but you said something that also sort of struck a chord with me and it's, and it's about, I don't know, protectionism of the worker. Do you see things like, I don't know, um, middle-aged guilds emerging to protect certain types of workers? Do we see like a data analyst guild that comes in, <laughs> that comes in and, and all the people working in big data become uh, protected by this guild and, and, and things like, you know, equity in the workplace and things like that get protected by the by representation from the guild. What, what do you think of that idea? Is that something that we could expect or not really? I love the idea of guilds. Um, I hadn't thought about it. And in, in, I mean, you're, what you're talking about is almost a union. And I thought that those are usually industry specific. I hadn't thought of them about being age specific. But, you know, AARP is basically like a senior person's guild. <laughs> so they lobby for those things, but, yeah. but there's not yeah. um, organized yeah. work. What I see is that um, that's intersecting with credentials. So um, sometimes I liken it to a community garden where, you know, we get together in a community where mm -hmm. we each are taking turns or, or like a co-op um, educating each other. So I'm part of a think tank called the Future Work Forum. And every second week, somebody volunteers to update. There's an AI academic. There's, you know, sort of we all have our own things. Yeah. Um, and we put into the pot, so to speak, into the garden so that all of us can benefit from it. Mm -hmm. um, and others are, are like SWAT teams or um, mm -hmm. really walled gardens where you have to have credentials to be a part of it. And, mm -hmm. and maybe that's mm -hmm. the guild thing. Um, the one thing I think that is interesting about the idea of a guild, and there are tons of marketplaces uh, already. Um, there's uh, groups like Critical Eye, which has a group of people who are CEOs, you know, there's CEO networks um, every place you turn, if you look for them. And, um, and those, those are quite prevalent already. The, the thing that I think would be interesting is guilds or something similar that can help us with the fact that our benefits and our saving and all of those things, which, and our healthcare, which have always mm -hmm. been tied to a company, um, mm -hmm. in particular in the U.S., what are you going to mm -hmm. do? about mm -hmm. those things. And I know that the Vanguard, for instance, is working hard on um, how to tackle that problem and how to allow people to have portable insurance and mm -hmm. you know that, that doesn't cost an arm and a leg and portable mm -hmm. um, 401k, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you know that people can really use to facilitate that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's already purchasing groups and things that are out there that enable better rates and that kind of stuff. And I, I like you, I, I see that continuing as we continue to evolve into sort of the next 10 years of work. I'm wondering, I want to shift kind of back to the great resignation that you referenced earlier. You know, is it really, I don't know, is it really the great resignation that we're experiencing or is it sort of the great mismatch you know we've got we've got so many people unemployed uh, we've got so many companies hiring it seems to take an awfully long time for a new hire to be brought into a, a at least a large corporation yeah um, so is the the needed talent in short supply or are we reacting uh, to the pandemic it's just a short-term kind of resignation thing and 
once things get settled there, we, you know, we sort of resume more of a pursuit of career. I, I explored this question uh, with my, my guest last episode. I had Paul Falcone, sort of the CHRO to the stars on, and, and we were arm wrestling over what, that, what this all really means. What do you think, Diana? I really think that people are waking up to the fact that the old contract is finished. And it's not always because companies, you know, are, are being disloyal. Company lifespans are decreasing. Our lifespans are increasing. And we won't be able to be largely in the same company for the rest of our lives. And so we're all in the, it's like, it's like a bad marriage. We're all deluded, you know, and um, I think people are waking up to that and they're saying, okay, great. My employer's not going to save me, right? I, it, they're fighting for their own lives. They're looking mm -hmm. to me to save them. I'm going to have to take agency over my career. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to be um, the person I'm going to have to define that narrative arc. I'm going to have to define my lifelong learning, and it is yeah. really scary and hard. You know, we we we've been schooled to be obedient um, yeah. and to follow a leader, but mm -hmm. it's very difficult to do that. And in my MBA classes, we always talk about like it was okay when we had the hierarchical model with the CEO and the VP and mm -hmm. etc. Like everybody knew. Yeah, and yeah. everybody knew what their role was and who they right. reported to. Sure. Now we have like these complex organizations right. that, you know, are difficult. And so um, the great resignation, I think, is a response to people really waking up to the fact that um, it is really risky to rely on one boss, one company, um, and to expect them to solve all your problems. Um, and so people are taking responsibility and also rather than just complaining, oh, you know, I have this job and they don't let me do this and that, you know, they've had alternatives and mm -hmm. they've, they've thought about what they might want their lives to be like mm -hmm. um, outside of work because they've mm -hmm. been sitting at home experiencing what it's like to have a life outside of work. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that we will all go back to work, but it may not be in the same way that it was before. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I don't think it'll be the same as it was before. And, you know, pining for the good old days is, I don't know, I think it's part of the human condition. Like, regardless of what's going on presently, we always look back and go, oh, it was so much better then. Um, so I, I assume that that's going to continue on. Um, I think it's really, you know, as someone that kind of advises larger businesses uh, on these kinds of things, I, I, I always ask the question, you know, are we sure that our retention issues and hiring challenges are, are around something that people are running towards, or is it something about what they're running from, you know, they, it, it, the old adage, you know, people don't quit companies, they quit their bosses, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think trying to figure out the answer to that is going to inform any kind of strategy one would put in place to kind of deal with the challenges that the pandemic brought along. And certainly the, regardless of the scenarios that we talked about today, as they emerge, um, it'll inform our strategies for dealing with those emerging scenarios, right? 
So somewhere in there, there's a question, Diane, I guess. I guess uh, well, I guess you know, let, let, me, let me frame it this way. What advice would you give today's leaders to start dealing with the challenges that you see for them in the future? I think it's back to our conversation about the complex organization. So, you know, there's a lot of talk is that I've spent my whole life in disruption, basically in corporate innovation and strategy and the whole new idea, you know, work with boards, the whole idea of purpose seems like mm -hmm. something that's overused. But if you start to realize that if nobody knows where they are in the hierarchy, mm -hmm. if nobody knows who they report to, who they're going to, you know, if it is that complex, as opposed to complicated, then things like purpose are important. And that is the pull factor. That's like, you know, that's the crusade. We're all in this together. And we've really tightly defined why we as a company wake up in the morning. And that drives belonging. And that, um, I think managers and leaders kind of translate that down for people to understand how they fit into and belong to that mission. Um, yeah. But on the on the push side, um, and I've been teaching interpersonal dynamics for three years, we are really bad at relationships. Yeah, and we're going to have to get a lot better at relationships uh, so between human beings uh, in order for us to uh, to not have that push factor, that kind of ugh, bad boss. Yeah, I got it. Um, yeah, it's really hard. And yeah. that's the greatest interpersonal, you know, that that's the greatest future of work skill that nobody ever talks about. So, yeah, I mean, for yeah. me, I, I feel again, because it's it's sort of a conversation that I have often with my clients. I think it's about sort of changing the employer employee dynamic. Right now, it's very transaction driven. I'm, I'm going to hire you to do this job and I'm going to pay you to do it. And you're going to give me all of your work. And that's how we go on. So it's a transaction. You're agreeing to sell me your time and I'm agreeing to buy it. But like you say, if we're going to be purpose driven, if we're going to be about making sure that we care and nurture staff and help develop them, things like agility and adaptability and reskilling become a responsibility that we have as employers and employees have for themselves as you mentioned earlier you know that whole idea of being a uh, a long-time learner and so on so i don't know i mean for me it's that that's probably going to be the driver that that separates really successful businesses in the future and those that sort of just tag along for the ride is that ability to change the transaction they have with their, their team members. Absolutely. And I think one big thing is learning is the new loyalty. So mm -hmm. if people feel if they're going to have to take agency, they're going to get paid for their time, but they've got to keep learning and they're going to mm -hmm. evaluate your company on, okay, what can I learn here that I can take to the next thing? Yeah, and that is it. a crucial aspect. Absolutely love that. Let, let's end on that, Diana. We'll, we'll pick up the conversation on LinkedIn Live. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I wish we had another hour because I think we just had so much fun delving into all the nooks and crannies of, of the future of the work. We'll do it again. The future will always be there, Tim. For, for, for sure. Hey, you know, you should tune in next week, by the way. I've got a really good guest. I've got Eugene Frazier coming on. 
uh, longtime um, Motorola executive, HR expert, uh, co-founder of Courageous Leadership with my buddy, Rhett uh, Power. And our question is going to be kind of an interesting one, I hope. And that is, it, is it diversity and inclusion or is it adversity and delusion? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> All right. All right, Diana. All hey, right. Thanks, thanks so much. I hope Thank you. you about these issues again in another episode. So thanks. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Jim. Take care.